there's no roadmap. You know, you suddenly you feel like the road's been washed away in front of you or the ground's been pulled out from under you. And that's why I wrote the book, is to give not just a psychological roadmap, but also a spiritual blueprint for how you can emerge with a more transformed approach to life as a result of having gone through this. Humility, patience, empathy, forgiveness, and growth. Although each gift serves as a booster for the next one, you don't have to take them all in sequence or all at once or at all. They are gifts, not regulations. Today on Couch Talk, I will be talking with Dr. Lori Nadell. She is a journalist first and then a psychotherapist. She has written this amazing book, The Five Gifts, and it is discovering hope, healing, and strength when disaster strikes. As a journalist, as she will tell us in our interview, she experienced many disasters, natural and man-made, and helped people along in the recovery process, as well as her own journey. Dr. Lori spent two decades in newsrooms and field reporting in South America. She came to recognize the need to help people whose lives were shattered by violence. After earning two doctorates through independent study, Dr. Lori created emotional first aid tools to calm acute stress after catastrophes and led a program for teenagers whose fathers were killed in the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center. But it was when her own home was destroyed by Hurricane Sandy in 2012 that she discovered these five gifts that we'll share today in our interview. So let's welcome Dr. Lori Nadell. Welcome, Lori. It is great to have you here on the call on Couch Talk with me today. You know, my Couch Talk, I say it's an intimate place for private conversations, shamelessly and guiltlessly. And I'm thrilled to share your book, The Five Gifts, Discovering Hope, Healing, and Strength with Disaster Strikes with my audience. So welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be your guest. Well, give us some background story. You've just had a fascinating life from your journalism career to becoming a psychotherapist. And tell us about your journey. Uh, Well, I I was a journalist for the first 20 years of my career. I worked in TV news and as a field reporter. I worked in newsrooms in London and New York and was a field reporter in South America. And that was probably before most of your audience was born. which I hate to say because it makes me sound really old. But anyway, after 20 years in in the news business, I I start, and and it's interesting because your book is about, you know, the hormone fix. When I became pregnant, I had already been working at at CBS for, I think, five or six years. And the hormones made me much more sensitive to what I had been watching from a clinical perspective for all those years, which is that instead of being able to kind of write with a kind of in a detached, observant way about, say, the survivors or the wounded or how many people were killed after, say, a a bomb or an explosion or some other natural disaster, now I was looking at everybody on the ground, everybody you know who was being rescued or everyone who was being carried out in a body bag and i and, and it would it just hit me in every cell that that person was somebody's child, and that really shifted me 
tremendously. And I would say that that was probably one of the things that that caused me to begin to look at the footage differently. And and footage, I say, in the course of a day, we had it was before the internet, so we had like twenty five monitors all over the room bringing in pictures from all over the world of things that were going on. And hard news is, it usually means tragic events or mass casualty events. And I just found that, that suddenly I was watching them differently and that it was hitting home that these were real people and that after something you know, going along and normal and something life-shattering happens, that you're going to need support after that. And so as I was exiting the news business and starting to transition into a more uh, writing uh, career, I, I started to become very interested in the field of trauma because I knew I'd had some exposure to that as a reporter. And so that's where I redirected my education. Well, you know, I love what Dan Rather wrote in his foreword for your book. And he says... Dr. Lori Nadell has spent years seeking to answer the question, that is, after what we had just witnessed, how can those still living who have suffered most cope? And then he continues, once a seasoned journalist and now a distinguished scholar and practicing psychotherapist, she has immersed herself in the academic study of suffering. In addition to the depth her own life story provides, she doesn't know it all, doesn't claim to, but she knows a lot and knows how to tell it. When it comes to dealing with personal struggle, she possesses infinite wisdom. And he says, when I first met her some 30 years ago at CBS, when she was a beginning news writer and obituary producer for Newsweek, she stood out. And I just think that's really cool, especially coming from Dan Rather. There's so many areas in your book that I've, I've highlighted. So in, in the, the journey then to writing The Five Gifts, tell us about your personal loss that, that you suffered and then how you came up with the recognition that there's these, these five gifts. No specific order. I like that you say that, but in this transition. Well, I uh, raised my daughter in, on a little barrier island, a little house that was originally a little blue kind of beach cottage that she discovered, and it was for sale. And I was able to uh, buy it and renovate it and you know, live in it for almost 20 years. She had, was well off on her own journey, and I used it for retreats uh, for people on the weekends. I did therapy there. I did healing sessions there with Reiki. It was a real little sanctuary. And in 2012, uh, Hurricane Sandy brought in three and a half feet of water from the Intracoastal Waterway, which was right down at the end of the block and some of the other smaller canals. And everything that I had built over the last 18 to 20 years was just wiped out. And it was very surreal because uh, I was there and my, my, uh, my partner was there and we were just moving the cat, moving things up to the attic as the water kind of burst in. The previous hurricane, which was two years earlier, had damaged some of the homes on the block, but they only got 18 inches of water. Three feet of water is really quite profound because the refrigerator starts to float and your heaviest couch starts to float. And the dishwasher, I mean, these heavy, giant metal steel appliances are bobbing around. And it's like you're, you're watching the movie Titanic in your own house. 
I get very calm in emergencies, so I was just kind of observing it and went up to the attic. We both went up to the attic and waited until the tide receded. And when the tide receded, it turns out that the storm surge had broken the, the sewer treatment pump in town mm. and that everything was contaminated. The water supply was contaminated. Everything was contaminated. And uh, we had to uh, evacuate after like two days. It sent me, I couldn't come back until there was power or electricity on the island. And this is when I came back and had to deal with the financial uh, nightmare to deal with the insurance companies and for anybody who's been through a disaster, there are a lot of vultures that come in after the disaster and you're suddenly confronted with all these choices that you have to make while you're in survival and, you know, nobody tells you what to do and, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars at stake sometimes. And so it, it, it was just overwhelming, but everybody was going through the same thing. And because I had directed a program for teenagers whose fathers were killed in the World Trade Center attacks, I knew that everybody in the community would need long-term support. And so I went, I spoke to somebody at City Hall and later uh, somebody at a local church and was able over, over a four-year period to offer two long-term support programs for people. Wow. So that was four, four and a half years. And then I uh, relocated to Florida made Florida my base and, and going back and forth to my office in New York. And I just started working on a debriefing team for firefighters in Broward County when the Parkland shootings happened. And that was in Broward County. And so I was privileged to have been privileged to work both with the first responders and with the teachers and others in the community after the shootings at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Mm. It's really what these horrible events have, have taught me or uh, shown me about the human spirit that I, I always find very inspiring because even people who have, you know, people who work for CSI units where they have to go into these absolutely horrible, disgusting scenes, you know, they, they develop a rapport, they develop an empathy for each other and also for the people who have been, you know, injured or killed. There's just a remarkable resilience that so many people have, but I think that we need to develop and in order to develop that resilience, because we don't live, most of us don't live with these extreme events happening. We're civilians, we're not first responders, so we don't deal with these kinds of tragedies on a, on a daily basis. So how do we develop resilience? Well, what I've done in this book is kind of map out the initial stages of what kind of self-care do we need during and after a disaster and what are the different psychological cycles that we go through up to a year and then after a year is when we need these five gifts because healing very often takes three to five years and people stop wanting to help after two to three months and then they want you to be over it. I love what you say in your appendix to have accept yourself. You are a normal person for having normal reactions to an abnormal situation. Right. And that's key. Right. And what you're saying that it takes four to five years to recover from a trauma, especially, you know, understanding that, like you said, the general public loses interest or move right. on after three to four months and you're still dealing with it. And I can completely relate, certainly through my trauma, my personal loss, but also through hurricanes. 
and right. also helping another single mom with her kids. I brought them into my home after our, our last hurricane or after Hurricane Irma. And, you know, the, there's still a recovery process going on. I mean, she couldn't get back oh. to her home for six months. And then there's still the recovery process. So let's dig into these five gifts, Dr. Lori. Okay. These five gifts came to me during a particularly horrific uh, cycle, I guess, or episode after four months, three or four months after Hurricane Sandy. And I, I finally just decided to take a news break and stop answering the phone and stop dealing with, you know, the FEMA calls and the insurance calls and just I treat myself the way I would treat my own patient or my own client. And I would just say, hit the pause button for 48 hours and just do everything you can to relax. And so one of the things that I do to relax is that when I'm able to is meditate. And as I was meditating, I heard um, an inner voice, which uh, may be my higher self or intuition, thank you, or it may be a guide or an angel, or it certainly has more wisdom than I do. And the voice whispered five words, humility, patience, empathy, forgiveness, growth. And it said, these are the five gifts that would help you to recover and heal. And please, please share them, write them down and share them with others. Wow. The five gifts were humility, patience, empathy, forgiveness, and growth. It was soon after that that I reworked a proposal for a book that I had actually started before the hurricane. And it was really about how we need to listen to the wisdom of indigenous people who have been telling us for centuries that our relationship with nature is out of balance. And that when we, because we no longer listen, the voice of nature is getting louder and louder and louder. And so it was kind of going to be like more of a, a kind of like, I guess, folkloric kind of book about, you know, kind of teaching stories from indigenous people. And, you know, and it, and it was a really good idea. But then when the five gifts came in, I realized that that, that piece that I would wanted to do a book about was really just one chapter, but one very powerful chapter, because I really think that when we get in harmony with nature, then we can really, we can really accept these five gifts and feel them on a cellular level. I, I think that's beautiful. And, and which do you feel like for you, is there any order to these gifts? Is there any pattern? Well, they came to me in that sequence. Mm -hmm. So I think about humility as the gift that it kind of takes away our expectations that somehow or other this wasn't supposed to happen to me. So we go from going, you know, from asking why, which is an unanswerable question, to why not. I always remember the, the story I did at CBS News about a little guy who didn't have any legs and he used to wheel himself around on a dolly and uh, he would sing all the time. And so this reporter said, what happened? And he said that he had gotten his legs shot off in a poker game. And for a long time, he was like, why God? Why me? And he was very angry at God. And then one day, this light bulb went on and he said, well, why not me? I guess it had to happen to someone. It happened to me. And at that point, he got this mission of wheeling his dolly up to the geriatric ward of the local hospital and teaching little old ladies how to play poker. To me, that humility that he had 
it always moved me. And I think that with humility, we can begin to just take the loss as, you know, this isn't just happening to me. As the Buddha says in the first noble truth, to be human is to suffer. And, and nobody can say, no, nobody gets a, a free pass from suffering. You know, money doesn't buy you the free pass from suffering. Loss, you know, tragic loss can happen and does happen to people on the planet every single day. So humility allows us to connect to that, I call it the ocean of sorrow, that isn't all of our experience, but it is genuinely a part of our experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, for me, when I was having a tough time, I would say to myself, Laurie, this happened to a million people. Okay, you are not alone. This you're not being singled out. You know these horrible things. You're being lied to. You're being you know people are trying to extort money and cheat you and you know throw liens on your house if you don't let them extort. All these kind of financial abuses. You know what? There are a million people going through the same thing. Mm -hmm. So that humility of feeling that you know I'm not special because I have this. It, it, no matter how deep the loss is. This is part of what it is to be human. That's the gift of humility. And to me, that's the foundational gift because it releases so much pain to just accept that this is where I am right now. I'm raw and I'm bleeding and you know, my, my heart is shattered, but I'm not the only one who's had this experience and you know, I'll get through it. I think humility kind of, get, it kind of reframes it in that way. And then patience is the gift that helps us accept that, you know, this isn't something that's going to go away in two months. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is because with disasters of all kinds increasing, every time you turn on your device in the morning, you see images of, you know, people, a plane crash, you know, a, a fire, some kind of horrible act of destruction. And as you you know, look at it, you know, you can just swipe it away. Or you turn on the, you turn on the TV and, you know, you're watching, you know, some morning show and then they, they go to the news. So it's very hard to escape the images and the footage of people who are, you know, legitimately suffering and in pain. And what we learn how to do is to change the channel. We learn how to swipe it away. But when it happens to us, we can't change the channel. And suddenly there's no roadmap because the future that we thought we were walking towards, even, you know, even the next 15 minutes that we thought we were walking towards, suddenly not there, and, and there's no map. And patience is the gift that helps us accept that this, this feeling of being overwhelmed, this feeling of grief, that, you know, whatever feelings you're experiencing, anywhere from anger to terror to being frozen in the headlights, they may go on longer than you would like or than I would like. And patience is the gift that allows us to accept that we are where we are. And it's okay. You know, the heart has its own timetable for healing. The third gift is empathy. The empathy is the wonderful gift that we see in first responders and rescuers and people who come to help, you know, right at the beginning of an event where there's been a big loss. But what we really need is sustained empathy, empathy that's going to be there for the long haul, not just the first three months or the first six months or when you know they ring a bell and the first anniversary comes around. It's, it really means being there, being present for people, 
being able to ask somebody, hey, what do you need? And being there to be able to offer to listen or to take a walk with somebody over the long haul. You know, there's no real time frame, but, you know, disaster can give us an appreciation for those people who were really there for us when things went really bad. And it helps us to define for ourselves what's really important. And I think empathy is, you know, when people are ruthlessly honest, we need empathy. And as a species, and several scientists have told me this, Dr. Jonas Salk, who I interviewed before he died, and Dr. Roger Sperry, who won the Nobel Prize for discovering the left and right hemispheres of the brain, they both said that unless we, unless we genetically become a more empathic species and recognize that, that we're interconnected, we have the capacity to make ourselves extinct as a species. Wow. And without empathy, we were so smart, quote unquote, that we were able to figure out how to wipe ourselves out for no reason other than that we were so-called smart enough to be able to do so. I mean, there's no evolutionary reason. It's not for dominion over land. It's not money. It's not food. It's not resources. It's not power. We could make ourselves extinct in less than a day. And in order to really counter that possibility, we need to genetically evolve into a more empathic species. When we experience empathy, it's also when we give it and receive it, it's, it's, it's the most uplifting of all of the five gifts. Forgiveness is a tough one because we think of forgiveness as a light switch. And I would never suggest that anybody forgive the perpetrator or the shooter or the bomber or whoever or whatever it was or the ocean. Some people I know never forgave the ocean and they moved like to the mountains after Hurricane Sandy. It's easier to forgive a, a force of nature than to forgive a human, you know, perpetrator of what we call an intentional disaster. But if we step into what it's like to be forgiving, ing, so we are then in an active state of forgiving, even a perpetrator. And we can be forgiving 1% today and 5% tomorrow and 80% next week and then back to 7%. It can fluctuate because it's not an on-off switch. But we can learn about forgiveness from places like Rwanda, where you know there was a, a tribal massacre of over 2 million people who were brutally massacred in like a two-month killing spree that's like nothing the world has ever seen. And somebody I interviewed in the book, who was a UNICEF driver in Rwanda during the genocide, had to lead forgiveness rituals on television to bring the killers in so that they could be forgiven and reintegrated into society. I mean, that's phenomenal. We think about it. In South Africa, the huge movement of reconciliation to try to heal after apartheid was no longer the form of a repressive government that they had in South Africa for so many years. So we have so much to learn. But we can learn from Rwanda and South Africa about forgiving even on a large scale, or whether it's on the force of nature, or whether it's an individual, we can learn a lot about forgiving. And I think we have to start by forgiving ourselves, mm -hmm. because we weren't able to prevent what happened in the first place. And very often we'll say, oh, 
I shouldn't have told my husband to go to work that day, or I should have left four minutes earlier, or I should never have taken that day off, or if only I'd been there 20 minutes earlier to get, pick up my dad from the office or whatever. We tend to blame ourselves and shoot ourselves. Mm-hmm. And when we are forgiving ourselves or in the process of forgiving ourselves, it makes it easier to bear the hardship and the hurt, I think. So we have to start with forgiving ourselves first. And the final gift is growth. As living beings, we're growing all the time. We don't have to tell ourselves how to grow. How many days is it that we get a new liver? I think I read it was every 15 days we get a new liver. All of our tissues, our cells are constantly regenerating. We're growing whether we choose to or not. But after a catastrophic event, when we experience ourselves as having grown from that event, we're no longer looking at the world through the eyes of this cataclysmic event. We realize that's something that happened in its past tense and that we can look at each other and we can say, I'm really sorry that I had to go through that and I would never wish it on anybody else. But if I hadn't gone through those events, I wouldn't have become who I am today. And you can look at yourself and you can say, you know, as a result of having gone through that, I know what it is, you know, to to have more humility. I'm a more patient person. I'm a more respectful person. I'm a better friend to the people I care about. I know what's really important. I know that if I can get through that, not that I want to get through anything else like that, but I'd probably be able to go through, should there be another disaster of that type, I, I do know that I can get through it. And I can share you know, what I've learned with other people. That's the gift of growth. And that's really the transformative potential that a catastrophic event offers us, even though it's very painful. I'm not, I'm not trying to turn it into this like light and love event. But right. you, go, you go through a really hard time getting there. And eventually you can get to a place where you, you know that you're resilient. You know that you have more courage than you thought you had. You've learned to stand up for yourself. You've learned to be able to respond to other people or not. You probably have a better sense of your own strengths and weaknesses. And with the five gifts, you can even forgive yourself for any failures that you may have made along the way. You know, mistakes, we call them mistakes, but sometimes they may feel like failures. You may have made a decision in an emergency that, that, you know, that cost you dearly. You might be angry at yourself. So the gift of humility and forgiveness can help you to kind of release that and be able to move forward having integrated the teachings from those experiences. What you're describing is post-traumatic growth, right? That's a post-traumatic growth. And we always talk about post-traumatic stress. And here this month in June is post-traumatic stress disorder month, PTSD awareness, right? And how pervasive it is in our society. Why do you think there's just such a national public health epidemic of PTSD? Oh. Well, you know, there has been statistically an increase in all three kinds of disasters, natural disasters, environmental disasters, and what we call intentional or, you know, human-to-human disasters. So anytime there's a violent 
especially what we call a mass casualty event in which more than, I think the FBI calls it more than four people at a time are killed in an attack. Those events are broadcast on television and on our, I mean, I watch television, watch my news on television, but most people either watch it on the computer or they get it on their phones or they get it on their tablets or their iPads. So you're exposed to this stuff throughout the day. And even if you turn off the news or you delete it, you know, you delete the news apps from your, from your devices, when you go to a store, it's in your face. When you go to a doctor, it's in your face. You, you got to get your muffler changed. You know, the TV will be on in the waiting room. And so we're absorbing these very visceral images of tragedy and, you know, the subconscious mind, which is the 93 to 97% of who we are that's beneath the surface of our awareness or attention, we absorb the sensory impressions of sights, the sounds, the smells, you know, the, the sensations, and what we call vicarious traumatization, which is secondary trauma. We can be traumatized by just with hours of being exposed to these kinds of images. So, you know, we're, we're all watching, we're all spending much more time in front of screens than ever before. I would say, you know, when I'm working, I'm in front of a screen 10 hours a day. You know, that's between writing and emails and doing some research. And I don't think, and, and when I'm not working, I try to limit my time. But it's probably, I would say, Six hours a day, if I really add it all up, that's a lot of time, if you think about it, mm-hmm. to be staring at a screen. And I don't, I'm not considered somebody that's on the phone that much. So, you know, we see kids standing, you see young people standing in the street, and they're all having drinks. They've got, they've got a drink in one hand, and they've got their cell phone in the other hand. Nobody's making eye contact. They're even sometimes even texting each other or sending each other funny pictures rather than, than speaking to each other. So, so we've become a much more a society that's much more dependent on interaction through the screen. And we can be traumatized by a lot of the things that, that we see even on a random basis. And then if we look at the research into climate change, or you would call it acts of God or severe weather events, more than 200 million people, 200 million people are projected to have experienced uh, mental health damage due to extreme weather events by 2025. That's, that's like in the next five years. That's a population the size of Texas with post-traumatic stress simply from weather events, from climate events, on top of the millions of people who are walking around with some kind of post-traumatic stress or acute stress kind of combination of indicators or symptoms. So. I think that's a national public health epidemic. I agree. I agree. And there's so much that we can really look at to switch from post-traumatic stress to post-traumatic growth. And what, what about those who want to help others that have gone through trauma, right? What advice would you give to those individuals to help people who are, are surviving from a tragedy? There are two pieces. A lot of what happens after a disaster is you get a lot of well-meaning people who really you know aren't specifically trained or they've taken a couple of courses and they try to show up you know they do show up at disaster sites and sometimes you know they do more harm than good so i would say if you're a professional 
and you're looking to, you know, know what to do or, you know, to work in this field, go to an organization, join an organization that deals specifically with trauma, where you could offer your skill set and you, you have to basically demonstrate that you've got the hours of uh, clinical experience and education to work in this field. There are a lot of different organizations now. There are also volunteer organizations if you want to go work in other countries or in inner cities. I mean, there, there are a lot of places where you can go out in the fields. On a personal level, you know, if it's, if it's a friend or a relative who's suffering, the best thing you could do is just, you know, ask, what do you need? And, you know, offer to listen or say, hey, you know, do you, do you want me to come over? Would you, you know, would you like to take a walk? Or can I send you something funny tomorrow? Because, you know, I'd like to hear you laugh. So those are kind of just, just think about what would you want? And, you know, people get flooded and overwhelmed by, you know, well-meaning people calling them a lot right after the event. So I would wait till three or four months after an event when people stop calling. And as I said, the help cycle kind of fizzles out after three months. And when people really start to need, you know, your presence is like six months after an event. And, and that's when we start to come out of shock and we feel more vulnerable and we realize that we start to realize that our life isn't going to go back to the way it was before. And we experience a kind of a loss of safety and that we feel more fragile. We feel that, you know, um, this particular type of event, you know, maybe it could happen again. Sometimes we lose a piece of our identity. So, for example, you know, if my identity was very much tied up in an activity like, um, friend of mine lives in Malibu and every day she would take a hike up through the hills behind the residential area and after the fires and the mudslides now that activity you know she can't hike there and so she feels like a almost like a part of her who am I if I can't hike in the Malibu hills every day or you know, she can find another hiking trail I suppose but it became part of her identity part of an activity that you do every day, or maybe it affects your ability to work or to get to work, or maybe, you know, it, 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 it makes you feel much more, I guess, more questioning about who are you now once you really come to, beginning to come to terms with, the humil with humility that this event has occurred and that it's changed you tremendously. That's the time when people really need somebody who's going to be supportive and listen and who's not going to check out. So I would say wait till about six months and, you know, and then kind of offer your friendship. Uh, always ask for the other person. I would say, what do you need? Mm -hmm. That's a good way to approach it too. Well, Dr. Lori, what are you doing now? And tell us about Soul Collage. Well, I've been trained as a facilitator of Soul Collage. With Soul Collage, we are kind of working on a principle of Carl Jung that said sometimes the hands can solve a mystery that the mind has struggled with in vain. And so we make a collage on a five by seven piece of mat board and that puts us into a very relaxed, meditative, playful state of creativity so that we do this guided, almost like an active dream work session where you ask the images to speak to you and then you write down the responses. And so you can ask, you're really connecting 
to your own intuition and your own creativity and your own inner wisdom. So I'm finding it's very, very helpful with people in the Parkland community, uh, with people who, you know, really, I would say eight months to a year or longer out of the event where your unconscious is kind of able to find uh, different, look at, look at images a little bit more creatively, if, if you like, or more playfully. Uh, you're able to relax enough to make, you know, it takes about anywhere from 10 minutes to an hour to make a collage. So it's been very healing. I am offering a workshop in Fort Lauderdale on June 26th. You can go to zenmindspace.com and uh, we'll have, it's called Hope, Healing and Strength with Soul Collage. And I offer Nightbird coaching to professionals who uh, get their second win at 10 p.m. You can contact me through my website if you're a nightbird and looking for some support. That sounds beautiful. Thank you. So that's how people can get a hold of you and work with you together, as well as at laurienadel.com. So L-A-U-R-I-E-N-A-D-E-L.com and on LinkedIn as well as Twitter. So the book, The Five Gifts, Discovering Hope, Healing, and Strength Where Disaster Strikes. Now, Lori, I have marked this up all over the place. You've got oh, thank you. and pearls and then... I love it. And then from your mission, working with teenagers, survivors of of those who have uh, lost a parent in the World Trade Center, September 11 tragedy, and you're just giving a lot of wisdom and another angle to walking through, walking through our trauma, right? Can't go over it, go under it. You only have to go through it. So true. And there's no roadmap. You know, you suddenly you feel like the road's been washed away in front of you or the ground's been pulled out from under you. And that's why I wrote the book. It's to give not just a psychological roadmap, but also a spiritual blueprint for how you can emerge with a more transformed approach to life as a result of having gone through this. Well, I thank you for being with us today and sharing your wisdom. I want to thank all our listeners here on Couch Talk. Thank you for sharing these podcasts. And thank you. I'm always so blessed. And it's like my cherished time to read your reviews. Thank you for all your wonderful reviews and sharing this podcast with your friends. That means a lot to us wherever you're listening, iTunes, Podcast Attic, or Stitcher. We are there and we're here for you. So be sure if there's a topic that you want me to really dive deep into, email my team at drannacabeca.com. And I'm excited to keep enjoying our time together and sharing knowledge and spreading healing. So thank you all for being with me today.